If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 will be in verses 1 to 8. Let me go ahead and lead us in a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you that we have the privilege of wording, of looking at, of studying your inspired and errant word. Lord, take your word and not only teach it to us, apply it to our lives. We don't just want to hear it. We want to do the word as James warns. Father, may your word penetrate not only our heads, but our hearts. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. There are many reasons that people do not attend church. I thought I'd give us the top 10 reasons why people don't attend church. And Jared is going to make a comment about each one. This should go really well. (laughs) Number one, it is raining, it's pouring, Highland Church is boring. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, well, at Highland, uh, there's actually two Jeffs in charge of planning our services, Jeff Weiss and Jeff Hines. And so if you find our services especially boring, uh, you can look to those two Jeffs. (laughs) Uh, But don't worry. Who invited you up here? Well, you did, so we're just getting started. (laughs) Are we good? Uh, I'm good. No, we're not good. All right. Number two, I like church in my PJs. Ever since church went online, I can kill two birds with one stone. I can watch church online and I can do the laundry at the same time. Uh, yeah. So I enjoy a good pair of pajamas as well. Um, but when we think about church attendance, we think about what church is, um, online church is wonderful. Church at home is wonderful for folks who are um, not able to get out of the home for whatever reason. And so whether it's sickness or maybe just physically limited to home. So that's been actually been a really good resource for Highland. Uh, and that's a good thing. But I think when we look at the New Testament and we look at Scripture, I think we have to wonder if God actually saw that to be the best model for the rest of us. If uh, we think about the New Testament church, it's a lot more normative for people to come together uh, like we are doing here uh, today in person. All they ever talk about is damnation and hell. (laughs) Only when you preach, I guess. We are done now. Uh, I'll go pack my office. Um, no. Um, <laughs> so it's, okay, so topics. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> sorry, you just got fiery when you said that. Okay. Um, <laughs> you know, when we talk about topics and so things like that, um, especially at Highland, we don't really do topical teaching. And so uh, we teach through books of the Bible. And so really, if we teach through books of the Bible, we only talk about topics like that and others as many times as it shows up in Scripture and the frequency in which Scripture talks about it. And so um, that's one of the pros about not doing topical teaching is you're not choosing one topic and then just finding all these verses. You're just teaching through God's Word, and it's kind of God who's, who establishes how often you talk about a topic and, and what those topics are. Yeah. This is heavier. I've been hurt by church. Yeah, um, that's unfortunately a real, a real thing for a lot of folks. And so um, 
that's not how it should be. Church hurt should not be a reality, uh, but it is. And so um, I think what I would say is if you're someone and that's your story, we're sorry that that's part of your story. Uh, if it's Highland that has hurt you, um, forgive us. I mean, the reality is, is we don't want to be a church that hurts people. Um, and, and maybe a step further would be maybe come to us and, and talk to us. Tell us about how this happened or what happened. Let us uh, attempt to reconcile and then know that as Highland, we're always trying to strive to, to serve our people well and not uh, add to, to the noise in that regard. You know, I can be a Christian and not go to church. That is true. Uh, that's a true statement, but it's, a, it's kind of an incomplete statement. Um, you can be a Christian and not go to church because going to church does not make you a Christian. Uh, you can't earn your salvation, but there's a difference uh, between being a Christian and then being an obedient Christian. And Scripture uh, clearly teaches us uh, to be obedient Christians that we are to fellowship with one another, to be part of the church. When we look at... Um, the, the writers, the authors of scripture, they're writing to churches, not individuals. Uh, there's over 60 passages in the New Testament that talk about uh, being one another, and they all presuppose church attendance. And so I'm a visual learner, so I thought maybe I'd provide a visual on screen. So Hebrews 10.25 reminds us to not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But I love this. All the more as you see the day drawing near, uh, encourage one another. And so the idea is the, the longer we're on earth, the more and more we're, we're together as opposed to meeting less and less. Yeah, but the church is filled with hypocrites. That's true, and in fact, there's, there's, there's two on stage right now, <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's just the reality, Jeff. Um, we, we are hypocrites, unfortunately. It's just, we, we mean one thing, we say one thing, and we do another. Uh, we're striving to be like Jesus, but we're definitely not perfect, and Highland is uh, uh, just like, you know, the grocery store, or maybe your place of employment, schools, uh, you know, maybe your own home full of hypocrites. Don't point at your parents, kids. But um, we have to wonder where we draw the line because if, we, if we're not willing to associate with hypocrites in a church setting, so why are other settings okay? So the truth is we, we strive to be like Jesus, but we fall short. Yeah. All right. Well, church is too long. <laughs> Certainly can feel that way. I bet traditions was feeling over there where you were running late in this service. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was not in my notes, huh? Um, I know because I wrote your notes. I did it right. <laughs> not all of them, obviously. Uh, you gave me talking points. Um, here we go. Uh, church can feel too long. It can feel long, but it's but at Highland, it's seventy minutes is our goal. That's what we aim uh, to be. And so, seventy minutes is shorter than a football game. It's shorter than a soccer match. It's shorter than a round of golf, especially if I'm the one golfing. Um, and that's only ten minutes longer than like most of my TV shows I watch. Uh, and the reality is, is that um, long church does not mean that it's uh, a bad thing if it ever does go along because sometimes the teaching is that good and, and the spirit moves, right? Is this not, it's I, not helping. Okay, let's try it. <laughs> it's not that long. <laughs> I have noticed, though, it goes a little longer when Andrew preaches. Oh, you know what? At least 80 minutes when Andrew preaches. Um, Minimum. If Pastor Dave does a communion devo, it's like oh 80 my. minutes. Uh, but there's this vicious rumor that I'm like a close second. Apparently long-winded pastors. I don't get it. Churches are judgmental. They're the morality police. Yeah, so 
um, I think people would say sometimes church does feel judgmental. And I think there's a difference between us as a congregation not welcoming people. That's, that would be judgmental. But sometimes we hear from the pulpit that, well, you're just a morality police. But the reality is when we go back to that topical thing. Um, if, if good churches are preaching through the word of God and good churches hold the word of God to be the authority, then once again, it's God who establishes the topics and the, the frequency. And so because God is God, he has the right to say what's right or wrong, moral and immoral. And from the pulpit, our goal is not to point fingers, but it's really just to help teach the word of God accurately the best we can and, and to really just meditate on this word and become more and more like Jesus. And so it's God's law and he has the right to say what's right or wrong. We don't go anymore because we got burned out in church. We've taken about a three-year break so far. Three years is pretty long. Uh, it's time to come back. Uh, it's time to come back home. Churches don't want people like me. If you knew what I had really done, you wouldn't welcome me. Yeah, um, I think I once believed that about myself. And so um, as we consider um, the people we're sitting next to, I think if we started talking to one another and we heard each other's stories, there's probably things we want to gloss over in our own lives. And I think all of us can think of things that we just wish wouldn't have happened or things we wouldn't have said or done. And um, yet God is in the business of rescuing souls. And uh, Highland is a place for the broken, not for not for the the perfect. And so I guess if you are someone who would you say you have accomplished all there is to accomplish in your faith, Highland's probably not the best church for you because we are a church for sinners. Um, and, I, and I'm really comforted by Jesus' words in Luke 5, verse 32. Hopefully you'll find it as a comfort too. Jesus himself says, I've, I've come not to call the righteous, but to uh, call the sinners to repentance. And that's, that's the business we're in, is allowing God to accomplish his work in us and through us. And a lot of that comes from us admitting we're sinners and, and needing a savior. And hopefully this is a safe place for that to happen. So you have called me boring. Correct. A hypocrite. At least twice. And long-winded. We've added to the list. Okay. I'll we go are with, done with you. That's, I'll take that cardboard box you gave me and pack up the, the office. All right. Good. Today's text, you might guess, is about the church. The interesting thing about today's text is the word ecclesia, church, is not mentioned even once. When I first looked at the text, I thought, I'm not sure what I'm going to say. But then I read it very carefully in the Greek language and realized it's all about the church. It doesn't really come across in the English language, but every pronoun is plural. This is not written to individuals. This passage is written when we gather together as a believer, as the ecclesia as the church, this is what God wants us to do, how he wants us to live, how we ought to act corporately. This is about the church. I want to pick up in Colossians 2 and read verses 1 to 5. For I want you all, plural, to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Now, this is remarkable because as far as we know, Paul has never been to Colossae. Right now, Paul is in prison in Rome. That means Paul is 1,300 miles away 
writing to a group that he has never seen who do not know him face to face, and not only one church, but two, also Laodicea and the Lycus Valley. And yet God has laid these individuals on his heart and he's struggling for them. Agona echo, I have struggle. That's what he says. And we'll talk about his struggles on behalf of these people. What is his struggle? What is his desire? What is he praying for in your life and in mine? That there are, hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. That is, he's praying for salvation. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We have to understand that our context is one in which this church has been infiltrated by two different groups of false teachers. One of which is proto-gnostics who are saying, in order to be saved, you need all the mysteries and all the secret codes, and you need to be part of this mystery religion. And if you have enough mystery in your life and you follow it deep enough, when you die, you will become God yourself and you will be saved. So he's actually using their arguments, the false teacher's arguments, and saying, what you really need is knowledge and wisdom of Christ, not this mystical religion. I say this, verse four, in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. The plausible arguments of saying what God declares good, the world declares evil, and what God declares evil, the world declares good. What God declares moral, the world declares immoral. What God declares ethical, the world declares unethical. This is written to today. For though I am absent in the bodies 1,300 miles away, Yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Now let's remember our setting. Paul wrote to the church at Colossae somewhere around AD 61 or 62. We believe that Paul is in prison. A small minority believes he's in prison in Ephesus, but the majority believes it's his first imprisonment in Rome. I think he's writing from Rome. He's 1,300 miles away. And this is one of what we call his prison epistles. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, all of them were written while Paul was incarcerated in Rome. And remember the circumstances. We have this church that is planted by someone other than Paul, a man whose name is Epaphras. We read about Epaphras in chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. We'll read him out again in chapter 4. We don't know a lot about Epaphras, but this is what we know. We know that he and Paul met in prison. They were incarcerated for the sake of the gospel. And certainly while they were in prison, it appears that Paul discipled Epaphras. Fast forward to maybe somewhere around AD 51 or 52. Paul is preaching in Ephesus. He's more than just preaching. He actually lives in Ephesus. He is the pastor of the church. Now, I've talked to individuals who believe that Paul is a great missionary and a great evangelist. Both of those are true. But first and foremost, more than anything else, Paul is a churchman. If you miss that, you've missed the New Testament. If you've missed that, you've missed the book of Acts. 
If you've missed that, you've missed the 13 epistles that he wrote. First and foremost, Paul is a churchman. We know that he pastored at least church, two churches. He pastored in Corinth and he pastored in Ephesus. All 13 of his epistles are written to churches. You say, no, no, no. Didn't he write to like Timothy twice? Yeah, Timothy in the church of Ephesus. He's writing to churches. 60 different churches are listed in the book of Acts and in his epistles that Paul had some kind of interaction with. So Paul is first and foremost a churchman. In fact, when he was pastoring in Ephesus, the book of Acts tells us in chapter 19 that Paul had created what is essentially a church planting initiative. He had taken individuals, he had trained them up, and he had sent them out so that there was no place in Asia that did not have a gospel presentation. Let me just read that to us from Acts 19. I'll just read one verse, verse 10. This continued for two years, this church planting initiative, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jew and Greek. So while he is in Ephesus, while he is pastoring a church, he has this church planting initiative that is so successful that all of the major and minor cities in Asia have a church. And Paul's responsible for that. It appears that one of his protégés is Epaphras, who was trained in prison and probably in this church planting initiative. And then he travels 130 miles away to Colossae and he plants the church. He plants the church in AD 51 or 52. And if you read the beginning of Colossians, Colossians 1, 1 to 7, especially verses 4 and 5, it's a healthy church. However, the church has been infiltrated. We have false teachers that have come to the church. We have false teachers who have these Gnostic tendencies and these Judaizer tendencies. Now, if you read the commentaries, they're all over the world. They're all over the place. Most people take the position that I'm going to take, but there's a minority who have created this Gnostic Judaizer group that we have never found anywhere in existence, and they teach that it's one group that penetrates. And that's unlikely because we have no evidence of it. What we have are Gnostics and we have Judaizers. They're separate groups. Now, Gnosticism, as we mentioned, really explodes in the second and third century. That's why we use the word proto, incipient, beginning of Gnosticism. We also see it in the Gospel of John. And they come in and they say, Jesus, he's okay. But if you want to be saved, you got to do it yourself. You got to work your plan and plan your work and pull yourself up by your spiritual bootstraps. You got to get into the mysteries. You got to get into the numerology. You, you got to find all the hidden meanings in the Gnostic texts. And at the end of your life, if you've done it well enough, you will become a god. You will actually become deity and you'll save yourself. It's a work-oriented faith. The Judaizers are very different. They're going after Jews who have been saved by faith in Jesus Christ. The book of Galatians is all about Judaizers. And these are sincere Jews who believe that salvation is by works, by keeping the Levitical law, the 613 laws of the Old Testament. 
that you need to keep them, keep a kosher life and a kosher kitchen. And if you do that well enough, you will earn eternal life. So they're coming at it from different angles, but both sets of false teachers are teaching exactly the same thing. The insufficiency of the atonement of Christ. That Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is not enough to pay for our salvation. We need to somehow add to it. That's no gospel at all. The gospel, the euangelion, the good news, is that we are sinners saved by grace. That it's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works. So none of us can boast. So Paul comes in and he tries to teach the truth to these individuals who have had a good church for 10 years but are being infiltrated by plausible arguments from without. And he tells us in verse 1 of chapter 2 that he struggles on their behalf. That word struggle, agona, is followed by a verb echo. I have struggles. I'm struggling on behalf of you comes out of the athletic world. It refers to an athlete who can't just show up at her event or his event and expect to get gold. You got to work hard. You got to spend time in the track. You got to spend time in the weight room. You got to have the right diet. You got to buffet your body and prepare yourself to be the athlete that you can be. And there's a lot in the background that happens in order for you to perform well. That's the word that's being used. Paul says, I do that on behalf of you, church. Now, Paul's never been there. He doesn't know these people. He even says, you guys don't even know me face to face. Verse one, how does he struggle? Well, we know two ways for sure, and I'll surmise a third. We know for sure that Paul prays for them. He told us back in chapter one, verse three, that he constantly prays. Now, think about that. He's never been there. The church was planted 10 years ago. He knows the church planter because he chained the church planter. But Paul has been attached to 60 different churches. He's 1,300 miles away. He's in prison. He's in Mamertine prison. I don't know if you've been to the Mamertine prison in Rome. If you ever go to Rome, go there. No tour guide will take you there. You just got to ask. But the Mamertine prison is just, it'll take your breath away. You can go down the stairs now because there's stairs, but they weren't there. It's a huge hole in the ground and you were lowered into the hole. And if you were in prison in Rome, they didn't give you water, though we know that there was a water source down there, and they didn't give you food. If you're in prison, the jailer does not feed you, does not give you liquids, If you don't have family and friends that come every day to provide for your needs, you die. And they don't care. If you're in prison in Mammer time, your life is likely over. Most people don't serve their time. Most people go to prison and die. That's just the fact of the matter a couple thousand years ago in Rome. And so if you're in prison, what are you going to be thinking? How do I get out of here? That's what's going to dominate. Your prayer life is going to get really good, but it's going to be about self, right? Paul is praying for a church 1,300 miles away that he's never been to. 
that was planted 10 years earlier. And Paul's associated with 60 churches, so he's probably praying for a lot of people and a lot of churches. He's struggling on behalf of this church, praying, pouring out his heart for them. The second thing we know in his struggles is he trained up their church planter. He was imprisoned with Epaphras and Epaphras was part of this church planting initiative that we read about in Acts 19 that reached all of Asia. So Paul was part of the discipleship program. But not only that, Paul writes an epistle to them. Probably more than one letter was written by one that God inspired, one that's canonical in our Bible. And the first two chapters are orthodoxy, right thinking. The last two chapters are orthopraxy, right living. So Paul is discipling individuals he's never met who do not recognize him face to face, verse one. And he's doing it while in prison. The third possibility, not mentioned in the text, but it is something Paul does, is when churches have financial needs, he actually has raised money from other churches for certain churches, like sending missionary money overseas. We see an example of that in 1 Corinthians 16, where he's in Macedonia in the Corinth or Corinthian arena, and he's raising money among the churches for the church in Jerusalem because of the persecution of the church in Jerusalem. Many have lost their jobs. And so Paul is always thinking of how to minister to the church, and he tells us that he struggles for them. He struggles. And I think to myself, how do you, how do I, how do we struggle on behalf of the kingdom of God. Oh, some of you do so well with it. Maybe you pray. Maybe some of you have been praying for a loved one, a family member, a friend. You've been asking God to do what only God can do. Open their eyes, draw them to believe in Jesus Christ. And you've shared the gospel. You're going out in, in faith and boldness Praying and sharing Christ. You're struggling. Well done. Some of you struggle with the word of God. You have a discipleship ministry. Maybe you're just leading your family in devotions. Or, or maybe you're leading a small group or a Sunday school class or a Bible study. And you're struggling with the word of God. You don't wing it. You don't just show up. You're in the commentaries. You're in the theologies. You write the notes. You prepare well. You're utilizing the word of God in a responsible way and you're struggling. Well done. Maybe some of you have a ministry of, of counseling and it's not so much that you're discipling with the word, but you're discipling with your life. You're saying, come alongside me. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's what Paul said. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And, and some of you are doing the same with somebody who's not as far along in their walk and you're modeling a Christ-like marriage or Christ-like singleness or how to parent or grandparent. You've been shepherding others by how you live and you're sharing that with others. Well done. You're struggling on behalf of the gospel. Or maybe you're interacting in missions and you get these missionary emails and you read them and you think, 
I'm going to pray for these. And you pray, and then you, you send a couple sentences back by email so that the missionary knows somebody's read, somebody's prayed, somebody's cared. I'm not just out here. I'm not isolated. Somebody really is coming alongside, struggling on my behalf for the sake of the gospel. Well, Paul is doing that. I think we're getting a glimpse of some of his prayer in verses two and three. He says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Man, there's a lot more there than I have time for today. But just look at a little of it. He's saying, may you knit their hearts together in love. He's not writing to individuals. He's writing to the church. He's saying it's tough out there. The church has been infiltrated by two false teachers, two different sets. It's getting dark, he says. They're living, we're living in an age in which what God said is good, humanity says bad. What God says is moral, humanity says is immoral. What God says is ethics, ethical, humanity says is unethical. It's getting dark. Probably for the first time in our lives, we regularly read terrible things about Christ and Christianity in the news, and it's becoming dark. And God does not intend for any one of us to do it alone. He created the church for times like these, to circle the wagons, certainly to be out and among them, among our world. We love our world. Christ loves our world. We're to be salt and light, but we need one another. We're to circle the wagons, supporting one another, praying for one another, holding one another accountable, spurring one another on, or in his own words, that our hearts may be encouraged, that we may be knit together. And then he says, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery. He's talking about the perseverance we have in faith. Perseverance in Christ, our salvation. As we persevere, we're spurring each other on. We believe in the security we have in Christ. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. We believe that neither death nor life nor things present, nor things to come, nor principalities or powers or any forces in this dark world will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And he's saying in his prayers, may we be knit together, may we be a team, may we circle the, the wagons, may we persevere together, pushing one another on. Those 60 one another passages, spurring one another on in love and good deeds. What he's saying is that the church ought to be a place of fellowship and theology, a place where you and I are encouraged in our faith. We support one another in our faith and we teach our faith well to one another. We're to be like the Bereans in Acts 17. You remember they would listen to Paul and then they would go home and they compare what Paul said to the word of God to make sure he got it right. Well, if you got to do that for Paul, you guys got a lot of work during the week here at Highland, right? We've got to be Bereans studying the word of God and spurring one another on. I don't believe 
that there's a single person at Highland staff or laity that knows anywhere near what we know corporately. Not a single person. None of us are even close. But I have known a few. I have known a couple individuals who knew more individually than the entire church that they attended. I've known a couple. Uh, one of which uh, was Wayne Grudem. Dr. Grudem was my theology professor. And Dr. Grudem, I, I'm not even exaggerating, this is really true. He had memorized about two-thirds of the Bible in Greek and Hebrew. I mean, how would you like him to grade your tests? Kind of rough, right? Dr. Grudem did know more than the church. He attended all of them corporately. I'm very certain of the fact. And he's probably one of about three that I've known like that. But you know, the remarkable thing about all three is they all went to church every week. Why? Well, not only because it's a command of God, but because the church is more than just a place where we learn. It's a place where we pray for one another. It's a, pray, a place where we sing praises to God corporately. It's a place where we hold one another accountable, where we spur one another on in love and good deeds. It's the corporate nature. I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to 14. That's that body image. And Paul said, the eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. The hand can't say to the foot, I have no need of you. And he makes the, the point that at the moment in which you and I come to Christ, we're given one or more spiritual gifts, but nobody has them all. Nobody. You might have wisdom and knowledge or discernment or teaching. Somebody else might have helps or hospitality or service or giving or evangelism. There's multitudes of spiritual gifts. Nobody has them all. We need one another. God created us. Every person. God created us to have optimal spiritual growth together in the church. It is impossible to have optimal spiritual growth aside from the church. It is impossible. You were not created for that. Neither was I. We are created. And we have a diabolical enemy against us who has many servants teaching plausible arguments that are antithetical to the word of God. I think of this one passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 to 15. It says this, for such men, these are false teachers, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. We need the corporate wisdom and knowledge and application of the word because we serve a greater God than our enemy, but we serve of, or we fight against a formidable enemy. We serve a greater God. We have a formidable enemy. I don't want to overemphasize who Satan is. I don't want to underemphasize. 1 John 4, 4, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Our enemy is defeated. He's defeated. Yet we're told 
Our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Put on the full armor of God, what we studied in January and February. The shoes shod with the gospel of peace and the belt of truth. The breastplate of righteousness. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The shield of faith to put out the flaming darts of the evil one. The helmet of salvation all tied together in prayer. God tells us that we have an enemy and he's a formidable enemy, a defeated enemy. God is greater, but don't ignore the enemy. And part of the plan to defeat the enemy is corporate worship. Part of the plan to defeat the enemy and to stand firm is for us to be in the body of Christ. God did not design one man, one woman, one family. He did not design a single one to be on their own. That is in contrast to the word of God. I think of a man named Abdul. Abdul came from a closed access country. That's a missiological term that just means that he was in a country where it's illegal to be a Christ follower and illegal to tell others about Christ. Abdul is up in age, he's a senior citizen. He's handicapped, he doesn't have legs, and he has been forced out of his family because of his beliefs in Jesus Christ. Yet every Lord's Day, he gets up before the sun rises, and he pulls his body across the sand, and then the sun rises and it gets hot and it burns his hands as he continues to move across the sand to church. And he was interviewed, and I got to read the interview, and he was asked, why do you do this? You've already been expelled from your family. You're up in age. You're handicapped. You don't have transportation. Why do you spend several hours getting to church and several hours going back to church, knowing full well that if they come and invade the church, you'll be arrested once again? Why do you do that? And Abdul said, well, I need church. And they need me at church. I was created for church. And if Abdul can say that in a closed access country, up in age, handicapped, without transportation, in a place that he's being persecuted, what does that say about me? If he needs it, so do I. God made us corporately to gather. There's no singular pronoun in this text. Everyone is plural because Paul presupposes that we have gathered together in church. The darker our world gets, the more we need one another and the more we need to contribute to one another. Again, Paul writes, I say this in order that no one may delude, delude you, humas, plural, with plausible arguments. God created us to need one another. Podcasts may be wonderful. Theologies and commentaries, they're worth reading. Family devotions are valuable. Listening to Christian music, it sets our soul in a right direction. Family devotions, absolutely, all of these things, certainly, but none of them to the exclusion of being in church. Jesus was a churchman. He preached in the synagogues. And he preached in the temple when he had opportunity. 
Paul is a churchman. The 60 one another's are about the church. Every epistle is written to a local church. The New Testament is all about the church. The Acts of the Apostles is how the church unfolds. If you look at Scripture, God has made it very clear that we need one another. The church is God's plan. The church is God's idea. And the church is God's bride. He created the church. Let's pray. Father God, we know that your bride is sometimes ugly. And we know, Lord, that the church has failed many, many times. Leadership failures, pastoral failures, attender failures. It's all over the place. It would be easy for us to become jaded towards the church. And due to our self-sufficiency, it's easy for us to think we could do it alone. But Lord, allow us to look at the New Testament the way it's written. Evaluate what you wrote and take it to heart. Allow this church so far from perfect, so imperfect in so many ways, Allow this church to take another positive step towards you and for your kingdom. And allow that for other churches in our community, in our state, in our country, in our world, that we might be the bride that you call us to be. Forgive us when we're not and spur us on to be. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.